0: This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Gordon Stewart, CFO of Unit 4, and I'm talking to Jack on the CFO Thought Leader podcast. This is episode 628.
1: One of the things that we've been really doing is to say, what are the portfolio of investments that we are making as a company from an R&D standpoint, for example? What are the bets that are most likely to pay off? How do we measure that success? How will we make sure that we keep ring fencing the right things, um, but also maybe reprioritizing and exiting some of the things that that we don't want to focus on going forward? And so, a big part of the last year or so has been, uh, as we built our new plan, to say, you know, what do we want to double down on from an investment standpoint, and what do we want to lighten up on? So, again, that sits at the crossroads of strategy as well as as finance to say, you know, how, how do we actually blend the right engineering projects with the right financial outcomes?
0: On today's show, we speak to CFO Inder Singh of ARM, the large semiconductor and software design company today wholly owned, By SoftBank Group. As some of you might know, SoftBank posted a remarkable recovery earlier this month after uh, only last May uh, reporting a, a historic loss. Now, that be it as it may, Inder Singh has resided at the intersection of finance and strategy for more than two decades, leaving little doubt his arrival at ARM in early 2019 was about to widen the realm of strategic possibilities for the company. Our talk with CFO Inder Singh begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily. There's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. speaking to Inder Singh, CFO of ARM. Inder, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Glad to be with you today. Inder, we're going to begin where, of course, we always do is by asking our guests to look back for us and to identify those experiences that they feel prepared
1: them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? I think a couple of things, Jack. I think, first of all, uh, starting off as an engineer, uh, working on capital projects for a company in different parts of the world uh, helped me appreciate the value of having financial skills, because as the projects got more complicated or larger, it wasn't so much the engineering that was the the challenge. Sometimes it was arranging the financing for it. And so that led me sort of to, you know, think about getting a a finance degree, which I did. Um, And then having that I had a couple of other experiences with it to say, okay, now, what do you do now that you have this basket of skills? How do you put them to work? And I was very fortunate to have a couple of opportunities. One was to actually work on a large commercial deal for the very first company I joined right after B-School. And uh, so at and had a uh, $4 billion opportunity in the Middle East, they were trying to go after and they were up against some of the biggest and toughest competition from around the world. And here was was a chance to help this company win a deal. When I was growing up, I had lived in different parts of the world, and the Middle East was one of them. So this was familiar territory for me to actually be in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh on the ground, helping differentiate AT&T among its peer companies, And, and really trying to be creative, Jack, which was not just sort of like size kind of what the deal is and how to go after trying to win it, but also be different try to be out of the box in terms of offering a solution to the customer that probably no one else would. So the one thing I remember is uh, we figured, okay, this is Saudi Arabia. They have plenty of oil, obviously. They have some OPEC limitations. They had a stretched national balance sheet and they were asking for financing. So of all things, um, you know, other companies were just offering like bank financing. In our case, we said, let's do an oil barter agreement. Let's figure that they're gonna pay somebody in oil, that company will pay us AT&T in cash and we'll provide the $4 billion worth of network. So we worked out a deal with with Chevron oil company. Uh, And so it was sort of a win, win, win. And um, the learning for me there honestly was that uh, if you just think out of the box a little bit, bring your engineering into it, bring your financial skills into it, just bring your common sense into it and see what makes sense for three different parties, you can actually offer A creative solution and guess what we actually won the deal not only because we had the right solution but also we had a creative financing so experiences that basically said financial skills have their place but you need to put them in context of understanding the business opportunity as well
0: at first blush was that something people kind of were surprised to that it got green lighted you know clearly makes great sense but at the same time you bump up against those who prefer conventional ways and thinking etc
1: well, I, I think it was look. Uh, AT&T is a large corporation, so we actually had to get uh, our own company to feel comfortable that this was something that would be that would be feasible, right? So there was the internal sort of deliberation on what we, what we should do here, um, but there was also sort of the the external view of the world to say, you know, how how do we actually make this easy, you know? And odds are probably Saudi Arabia, the customer, won't take it up necessarily. They may not even need it but the fact that you put it on the table just made made you stand apart. And uh, you know, the financial hat there was actually structuring the transaction in such a way that there was, there was a limited, if no risk to anyone, but also making it such that there was a win, win, win type of a partnership all around. And, and lo and behold, uh, you know, we did win the deal. Uh, they did not need that financing, but had they, Um, They could have tapped into it. And I I think what they appreciated was the fact that we were thinking of their needs, the customer's needs, and how we might help them solve their need without them even pointing to it as a need.
0: Now, you have so many uh, sort of marquee names of very large companies uh, in your bio, Indira. And again, just to share with our listeners, Prudential Financial, Cisco, Comcast... Ah, uh, Unisys. Of course, you were you were CFO there for you know a number of years. I, I, but prior to Unisys, you had these very interesting roles at Comcast, at Cisco, in their finance roles. But they're they're not CFOs, but they are uh, sort of top strategic roles in finance that I think many uh, executives would covet. How did what type of executive were you? How would you? Ah, uh,
1: characterize yourself
0: prior to entering uh, the CFO office.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think that um, it, it's hard to sort of describe it um, in a in a soundbite, but I, I th- I'll try. I think the best way to think about it is making sure that if you're a finance leader, you're sitting somehow at the intersection of strategy and finance, and and that is really important. I think increasingly so, um, as we think about the markets that every CFO faces, the challenges that every company faces, you know, not not to even speak of the current situation we're in from a global standpoint, but also just to think about the natural things that a CFO can a- actually help a company do. I think that over the last 5 to 10 years, CFOs have become not just invited to the to the table and to the discussion, but actually need to be a critical part of it. And so I would say I've been fortunate in many ways that Maybe it was the skills, maybe you know the the engineering, and maybe it was sort of like growing up on four continents. I'm not sure exactly what the root cause you could say is of sort of being able to sort of sit on, on strategy as well as on the finance side of things. I think it's something that you just have to get comfortable with. And and strategy often is gray, unclear, needs to be um, quantified, needs to be fleshed out in some way. Someone has to bring structure to it. And often there's a chief strategy officer, sometimes they're not. Uh, Especially when there's not, there's an opportunity for the CFO to just fill in that void, step in, appreciate the fact that the CEO is articulating a vision, someone has to help make that real. And really it's up to the CFO then to say, okay, how do I help the CEO and the leadership team execute on what they're trying to do? And then how do I bring structure into this unstructured world? And so, so I think that's the common thread, uh, if I could call it that, across some of the experiences I've had, is is the great fortune to be able to bring the strategy aspect of it with the financial aspect of it, and then offer up sort of a connect-the-dot solution.
0: And just, again, you have these interesting uh, segues in your career. You, you were with SunTrust uh, for a number of years where you oversaw their equity uh, capital markets group. And... From there, you step into the role of CFO at Unisys. Am I right about that? Uh, was that yes. sort of the next jump? What was your thinking there? And was it just a, a wonderful opportunity to, to be CFO of this giant organization?
1: Yeah. So, look, I think Unisys um, has a very storied history and, and hopefully a very bright future. And when I was joining or con- contemplating joining, the company had brought in a new CEO Uh, The company Unisys had been formed through the merger of two very large companies about 30 years earlier, and uh, it had been challenged in the market in not being able to grow and really not having the balance sheet and the capital to do all the investments it wanted to do. Um, It it had wonderful customers, uh, the federal government, um, Customs and Border Protection, I mean, a lot of solutions around the world. Um, Scotland Yard was a customer incredible roster of customers i mean you'd kill for that sort of of customer base and the customers loved it customer sat was through the roof the challenge for the company was how do you grow how do you drive a profitability and then frankly also how do you neutralize or cure this underfunded pension plan they faced so it was a it was a multi-pronged challenge um, and they were facing very large competition from um, the the likes of HP and Accenture and other big balance sheet companies. And uh, you know I one of the things I've always done is never shy away from a challenge and in fact, probably run towards one. And if anything, I could see this one being one of those challenging opportunities where you know not only could I learn from it, but hopefully also contribute to it. And the CEO and I got to know each other uh, during the interviewing process, which which did last um, some months before I finally said yes.. Um, and it was one of those where, you know, he was trying to build a team around himself uh, and his mandate from the board uh, at this publicly traded company was make it grow, drive a profitability, raise capital, put the, 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 the company on a, on, a, on a sharp, strong footing for the future. And, you know, there was no chief strategy officer. So I was asked to take on, guess what? The strategy role as well as the finance role. And, and that's where if you have a toolkit uh, or a playbook, um, and then you know that you know every challenge is a bit different, but that playbook is going to work if you actually can um, put it uh, put it to practice. Uh, it was a question of getting to know the business, um, understanding the the customer base. I had the great fortune to come in as Chief Marketing Officer for a couple of months in the beginning because the CFO hadn't quite retired yet. And I got to tell you, that was like the funnest thing I've ever done. Um, you know, we rebranded the company. We, we decided how we were going to focus it around security. It had tremendous assets. They just had not been highlighted. And, and customers knew Unisys, but there was really not a differentiating tip of the spear. And uh, so we put that in place. Uh, I moved over to the CFO s- slot, and we started then focusing in on, okay you know, how do we actually grow the company? And, and in my experience, um, finance can serve many roles. The best of those is actually helping the business achieve its business outcomes. The worst of it is just doing the basics, just getting the numbers right, just making sure that uh, you know the, uh, the, the accounting systems are correct and the processes are strong and all of that. To me, that's important and very vital, but that is table stakes you have to take that to the next level and be willing to actually say, okay, how do we actually enable growth? And so there was a lot of teamwork there. Uh, you know, the, the CEO had pulled together a blend of incumbents from the company who had been there for 10 or 20 years and others that were had been there for two or three months. And, and so we had to gel together. We had to quickly uh, begin to guide the company towards something that that Wall Street analysts could then latch onto. And, uh, we were fortunate that we were able to uh, not only guide uh, for the first time in like 14 years, I think, uh, but then meet or beat that guidance every single quarter. And uh, so it, it's a, it's always a journey. And and yes, when you're you're a publicly created New York Stock Exchange listed company, um, there's very little room for error. So um, yeah, it, it, I learned a lot, and 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 that company was on a stronger footing. Um, when I when I left to join ARM.
0: Well, that's a that's a nice segue for us. Uh, let's ask you about ARM. Tell us about ARM today. What are what are its offerings? Tell us about this company.
1: Yeah, so ARM is a company that was also formed about thirty years ago. Uh, it was founded in uh, in the UK in Cambridge. Uh, it was literally started in a barn in Cambridge, um, and it was initially a joint venture between Apple and acorn computers in the uk and the notion was to create a cpu a central processing unit for uh, back then tablets and pcs and things like that so create something that uses less power but provides more computing power a, a perfect blend of things that you need for all things mobile and by a combination of probably luck and, and 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 also great planning by the company um, it prepared itself for the advent of phones going from analog to digital and then from digital to smartphones and during that period of intense growth in mobile devices and mobile computing the company established itself as the incumbent almost de facto standard for virtually any smartphone because it provided the smartphone with the, the compute power that smartphones increasingly needed as well as extending the battery life. And so ARM for uh, a decade or so um, really built a, a strong presence and, and then started getting into IoT and other things, anything that needed actually either connectivity to the internet like IoT or anything that needed the combination of computing and battery power. So today, ARM has a core business. Um, The core business um, that we are really focusing on now going forward uh, sits at the juxtaposition of an alphabet soup of future technologies. So if you think about AI and machine learning and AR and VR, ARM is the IP designer of many of those. So we don't manufacture semiconductors. We actually provide the IP designs so that our customers can manufacture and ship the semiconductors. And every year, about 20 billion devices are shipped with our architecture in it. So over the years, more than 165 billion devices around the world are either connected or uh, depend on ARM architecture. and so today, we 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 are inside 95% of the world's smartphones. Um, we arm uh, touch about 70% of the world's population. Um, and Arm is now positioning itself for the next 10 years to say, how are we going to provide the, the common sort of platforms that people will need? And the interesting thing about Arm, just to sort of uh, put a bow on the story, is the things that are on our on our drawing board today end up in devices three or four years from now. So you get this tremendous lens on what might happen in the future. And whether it's an iOS device or whether it's an Android device or whether it's a data center server, um, a lot of the technology around the world uh, is architected around this common thread and and optimized with the software and the hardware together. Um, And now we're focusing on Autonomous vehicles. We're focusing on uh, the server market and cloud computing, uh, and and we have a very very global sort of footprint. So it is a um, it's a company that again at the heart of it is the architect of what technology will be three to five years down the road.
0: Interesting. Now you when you arrive there, do you reorganize your team or is there something you need to? uh put into position so that you can achieve all of what you want to achieve tell us a little bit about your arrival
1: yeah I had the um, the privilege of joining you know I, I left my prior company on a Friday started on a on a Monday and and had a, a, a transatlantic flight over the weekend um so it, w- it was pretty much you know land um you know walk into a a kickoff of the annual sales activity uh and then you know get to know my team basically immediately and so the um the 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 team there was uh was very strong i was very fortunate to pick up a very um talented group of folks most of them were based in cambridge some were based in san jose and uh it, it was nice to actually look at the organization and say wow okay so so i have something here to actually build on a pretty good foundation where where i felt we probably needed more um, for the future, was the ability to um, forecast the future more accurately, and um, you know I think every company needs that. And and so as we thought about you know what are the things that we want to put in place, what are the people, processes, and technologies we need, we we realized we needed a digital finance transformation, which we pretty much kicked off right away. We also realized that some of the processes need to be tightened up. Uh, as we think about the future and we think about uh, being public again um, as a standalone company, perhaps, and, and also to make sure that we had the talent that we needed and the talent we could uh, retain and develop. So uh, there were a few areas we probably upgraded talent just to make sure that, like like an FPNA, where we wanted to make sure we had the the data science team in place, the the predictive modeling team in place to think about what uh, you know the next. Two or three quarters were going to look like, as well as the next five to ten years, um, and then be, you know, more right than wrong. Um, and so that was a was a probably uh, an upgrade of, of a capability for the most part. I was very happy that the team had all the building blocks in place. And so yeah, um, uh, we are we are looking into the future and 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 actually building on kind of the success the company has had Uh, in attracting the right kind of talent in Cambridge, the right kind of talent in in San Jose as well.
0: So we like to uh, discover how finance leaders are extending their lines of sight into the business today. And I always begin with this question. What are some of the the dynamics you're seeking to better expose and measure with your team? Is there something, some numbers that uh, you've spent a lot of time trying to help make visible within the organization or bring forth, what would those be?
1: Yeah, it, it, look, our arm is uh, at its roots and in its soul, an engineering company. Um, and it has to be that way because you know our product cycles are three to five years, not one to two quarters. Um, so we really have to put investments in place today to, to create ROI in the future. And so R and D and revenue don't happen in the same quarter, not even in the same year, you know, maybe in the, in the same three or five years. So one of the things that we've been really doing is to say, what are the portfolio of investments that we are making as a company Uh, from an R and D standpoint, for example, uh, what are the bets that are most likely to pay off? Um, How do we measure that success? Uh, Where are we incubating new things that may take longer to develop? How will we make sure that we keep ring fencing the right things, um, but also maybe reprioritizing and exiting some of the things that that we don't want to focus on going forward? And so a big part of the last year or so has been, uh, as we built our new plan, to say, you know, what do we want to double down on from an investment standpoint, and what do we want to lighten up on? So again, that sits at the crossroads of strategy as well as as finance to say, you know, how how do we actually blend the right engineering projects with the right financial outcomes. Um, and so you have to think of, a, of an array of different kinds of metrics. It depends on if the technology is nascent, You know, arguably autonomous vehicles are something that will happen over the next five to 10 years in a bigger way. Um, and so it is arguably a nascent market, but at the same time, um, it, it is a market which, which is going to um, uh, evolve from today's cars to tomorrow's cars. So how do you actually make sure that you have the things that are telling you that you're succeeding? So in something like that, design wins or socket wins become really important. Maybe more important than the revenue that that because there are no fully autonomous cars today. Uh, But are you actually establishing the same seeds for success that you did in your core businesses in the past And, and leveraging a model that is familiar to you versus you know, are there some things that you're doing that may have a very bright future, but maybe um, if they were managed differently or managed by someone else um, and invested differently, they may have a greater likelihood of success. So, you know, one year in, we've, we've already started to make some of those changes, really strengthen the company's balance sheet, its, its financial structure, its profit margins, and its, and, and its ability to grow with greater confidence. So as with anything, um, you have to introduce metrics that measure the here and now. The mature businesses is around revenue and profit and cash flow. And then the new businesses that are kind of adjacent to it in terms of your ability to to expand into that, and then brand new things. And you know whether which ones of those you want to be in and which ones maybe you don't.
0: So I'd imagine you've got maybe a year before. Uh... Uh, COVID arrives uh, following your arrival there. So you had a, a set of priorities you were pursuing, no doubt, uh, last year. And then COVID arrives, and now we're all part of this new environment. Can you share a little bit about the timing and uh, uh, the response that ARM has taken?
1: Yeah, so so I, I actually did join uh, in, in earlier 2019. And, and as we started that year, um, we, we already had a Black Swan event, Happened kind of in in spring of that year, where where the trade war and the trade disputes really started. And of course, you know we're a company that provides technologies to to lots of companies around the world, and and we had to adjust rapidly to that environment first of all. So that was actually really good practice right from the get-go to say how do you manage through the uncertainty created by an exogenous event like a um, trade dispute, for example. And and so when the pandemic hit, um, yes, it was it was another black swan event, um, but but somewhat different. And and no one could really say how this one would play out. Um, in fact, no one in the world, uh, and everybody was wrestling with it. So so our response was to begin to size different scenarios. And so fortunately, we had put some of that fp team in place, and we can now start doing scenario analysis and models that said. You know what is the downside scenario here if things really go bad how bad would they get Um, what is the upside scenario relative to that and then is there sort of a most likely and and putting that envelope of potential outcomes allowed us to at least see you know would revenues grow or shrink would profits increase or decrease and if so in any of these scenarios how do we actually adjust Um, so going into it uh, you know by by the middle of march we had already Started sizing some of these scenarios, and then making um, lots of sort of conversations with our with our with our own leadership team, as well as our parent company SoftBank, uh, and the leadership there to say, you know, how do we want to invest? What do we think the outcomes are? And and what are we most confident around? So, uh, we did put controls in place immediately around costs. Um, you know, fortunately, we're a company again of engineers, so uh, the work from home environment we went to was actually quite seamless. Um, you know, I, I also have the fortune of having the, the IT organization and uh, that team really did a great job of putting in, you know, the right security frameworks and VPNs and allowed thousands of people to work remotely. Um, we've been in that mode for a while, um, you know, and, and so in the meanwhile, we've also tried to make sure that, you know, we're, we're controlling the costs until we have greater visibility. And, you know, three months in, we're starting to see. Uh, a bit more clarity than we had three months ago, um, but again, you know, one quarter doesn't uh, trend make. Um, so we, we're we're keeping a, a keen eye on costs while we watch for what the revenue is going to be doing. And and they were, we we sell into a number of industries, so each of them probably face a different time to recovery.
0: We are going to ask you our signature question now, which is, uh, could have happened any time in the course of your career, and you do have this very interesting career with all sorts of chapters, Uh, but if you could just go back and pick out one finance strategic moment for us, Uh, and again, this is your lines of sight into the organization as a finance leader allowed you to see something and respond to it. Basically, that's what we're asking for. What would you share with us if we asked for a finance strategic moment?
1: yeah, there there have been a few. Um, you know, I, I I think as any finance leader has um, these moments of of epiphany, um, you know, one for me was uh, when I went from uh, the first time from Wall Street back to corporate. so the 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 opportunity to join Cisco Systems, uh, heading up finance and strategy for their products business, which which was, I think around, 30-ish billion dollars or so, and about 25,000 engineers back then. And, and really, um, an abundance of products, different markets they were selling into. Um, and for me, coming in as a um, someone who had been in corporate America, had gone to Wall Street to be a Wall Street analyst for several years, um, and having walked in the shoes of investors, uh, gave a um, I think a different perspective than had I just stayed on in in a corporate environment, and being able to sort of pick winning strategies from from losing strategies by watching other companies, uh, and recommending to investors where they should put their money, uh, helped me bring some of that in uh, into the role that I took. And 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 I think the 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 moment there was kind of like the Lehman moment because uh, several months after I joined, Lehman uh, bankruptcy happened. And uh, the world, again, seemed to be an economic freefall. Uh, and so we were, you know, we were all trying to figure out, OK, where's the bottom? Uh, you know, is it a quarter away? Is it now? Is it 3 quarters from now? There was very little visibility. Um, you know, Stocks in general had taken a nosedive. Ours had too. Um, and then the question was, OK, what is the right strategy? Does it need to change on the other side of this chasm? And there you had to sort of step back and look again into this very gray environment uh, and say, okay, um, you know, is, is this a recession, a depression? What are we going into? Feels a bit like what we faced earlier this year too. Um, but it was one of those experiences where you you got to use your quantitative skills from the Wall Street side to actually model out different scenarios um, and have a dialogue internally with a leadership team. Um, you know, I reported to the CFO, and we reported to the CEO, um, and uh, you know, really talk to the CEO and, and his his key leaders, and say we have we have some options. Our our investors are looking for financial return and more certainty, and they want a different way of capital being returned to them. Buybacks are one thing they want, but they also potentially want a dividend. And here was a company that had never done a dividend before. And that was anathema. Um, so how do you actually look at that scenario versus the BAU scenario, which probably would have led to uh, a longer recovery period for Cisco, um, a, a more, a, 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 let me say less lean cost structure. So we, we decided that it was far better um, to actually look at it from a, uh, you know, let's let's sharpen our focus on three or four priorities instead of 30 and invest in three or four things. And and we had to compromise with the CEO. We said, no, it'll be five things. I was like, okay, fine. As long as it's down from 30. And so we decided on, on five areas that became the mantra for the company. And so anything that fit into the five areas in terms of investment, we put money into, anything else we took money out of. And so that capital reallocation within the company, which obviously this, you know it takes a village, right? So this was a team effort. But to play a, a key role in that, in being able to articulate, you know, strategy A and and its stock price outcome versus strategy B and its stock price outcome, having stress tested that from the Wall Street angle as well, um, allowed us to pick one that actually, when we announced it, um, led to a pretty strong uh, appreciation in the stock price. And in fact, in the following I think year plus, the stock doubled, and 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 so the company has been, you know growing that dividend since then, it has got a leaner structure since then, it has become more of a software company. And you know, I left years ago, but some of those building blocks are still in place. So for me, that was a really important lesson that you need to not only think about yourself as a company from your own lens, but you, equally importantly, you need to make sure that you are lined up with your customers and they, how they think of you, and, and importantly, your investors, and really to understand those investors' needs.
0: Wow, what a, what an interesting chapter for you. And just to point out, of course, that's where uh, the uh, Cisco chapter is what I, I would imagine first brought you out to Silicon Valley, where you've now returned uh, with ARM. Am I accurate about that?
1: Yes, I wish I had never sold my house in the Valley, because the only thing that's really changed is the, the real estate prices are through the roof. Now,
0: the one question I have about that, which is interesting, again, you, you shared with us a story about joining uh, Cisco. It was 2008. I have to believe there were a lot of uh, Wall Street professionals raising their hand for that role. And this is, uh, you know, the CFO of uh, Cisco when looking for a Wall Streeter with with your background, with someone who had all of your experience, I would imagine, to play this role. How am I doing? Am I getting that correct? And I I suspect you didn't hesitate to accept the role.
1: Yeah, I'll be honest. When you know, when when they invited me in to come and, and speak with them uh, I didn't know it was an interview. Uh, I mean, it, it was essentially to come in and present to them, uh, a view of their markets and how investors thought about them. And so there were a couple of leaders in the room, uh, and I was doing a presentation and uh, evidently something clicked there. Um, because you know, soon after I, I, I did get a call from a recruiter who said they were representing Cisco. So they probably looked at a lot of different, um, candidates and probably could have picked almost anyone. Um, I was lucky it was me.
0: When we return, CFO Inder Singh enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. You know, it, it seems like you you had a number of different CFO roles along the way where you were overseeing some of these giant divisions of these different big marquee company names. But it wasn't until maybe Unisys where, you know, the role was yours. And as you described for us, it was interesting. You had a chief marketer officer role before you step into that role. But... I'm just curious, when you finally arrive uh as the CFO, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think that was really your first C-suite. You're there. Um, if you would go back and tell yourself something, what would it have been? How did the CFO role? Maybe it wasn't what you expected in some some way. Any anything?
1: I, I think that that um, you know, yes, that was the first CFO role with a capital C. Um what I tried to think about my prior roles, frankly, was CFO with a small C. and And so you know the the mantra that that I developed by working with some really bright people and having the good fortune to work with folks like Carly Fiorina and others that that were very strategic and thought about you know how you actually uh, look at an opportunity, again, bring structure to it. Uh, and you know, her advice around uh, be sure in your career, that you try to tackle some of the difficult projects, and then galvanize a large group of people uh, around going and, and tackling that project. Um, to me, was was a was a tremendous sort of uh, insight. Maybe I didn't appreciate it as much at the time when she said it, um, but you know that, for example, led to her and I and some others working on on the breakup of of AT&T in the in the late '90s when. I was early in my CFO, in my finance career I should say, um, and I was her finance partner. And, and we did a couple of IPOs, uh, one of, of Lucent out of, uh, of at back then. Um, and so what you realize is that the role of a CFO is to be somewhat of a generalist um, and to know enough about each of the areas that uh, fall under the purview of the CFO usually, whether it's something very specialized like taxes, or whether it's something much broader like accounting and controllership and audit and know about each of these areas, but make sure that you have a re- very strong team that you then support, develop, and, and help them succeed in what they have to do. That frees you up to then take a look at the more strategic things uh, and how to help them work. So, you know, I, I would argue that, that, you know, the 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 best learning was not so much, you know, I wish somebody had told me to do X, but it was actually someone told me to do X and 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 then trying to um, use that insight in whatever I've done. and And so you know, filling the void and making sure that something that isn't getting addressed is really important. That's how you stand out. If you want to stand out, that's how you do it. if you If you don't, and that's okay too, then you know, play your position and play it really well. Um, but if you want to move up the up, up the the sort of the finance ladder, if you will, or even become a generalist and a GM, then be broader and and go take a little bit of risk um, with your own career, just as you would with any investments that uh, you're making for the company.
0: Just again, uh, highlighting you've, you've moved to the West Coast uh, twice, you've moved to the East Coast, it seems you've lived in different parts of the world as well. So this is a finance career that really has put down some miles uh, over time. Just to reflect a little on the personal side, what's kept you on an even keel? Is there some part of your routine or something, some habit that you have that's allowed you to uh, to travel uh, the way you have over the years and stayed sane and on an even keel? What, uh, what advice would you have?
1: Yeah, well, having a wife who is a psychologist really helps. <laughs> uh, and, and helps keep you grounded and, and helps, um, make sure that you're thinking about things in the right way and striking the right balance as hard as that may be. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think one of the habits that's really important is, uh, hate to say it, but you almost have to be always on. And, and if you're a CFO, you have to be always on. It could be a business continuity thing that pops out of nowhere. It could be a pandemic that comes out of nowhere. It could be a, a, trade situation it could be a customer incident it could be anything and you just have to have the even keel to actually deal with the different things as they come um, without getting too wound up and on on the flip side you know if you have some really big success and and you do something really interesting and valuable then also keep an even keel and and so you know very little variability around how you think about your eq uh, and practice it, um, and then you know this. This constant learning uh, is always one of those things where it just comes naturally if you take on these types of opportunities. And th- it, there's no um, secret sauce here. I think that you know one learning for me has been it's important to be grounded in data. It's been it's important to have a quantitative view of the world. It's equally important to have and develop and nurture an instinct and. And know when you should depend on data and then when you have to use instinct. And, and that just takes practice, frankly.
0: Interesting. Wow. Is there, is there a book you'd recommend for us? doesn't have to be a business book, but any, any come to mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think there's so many that books that, that really impart knowledge and, and help you become leaders and help build skills. Um, you know, one that, that I have uh, depended on partly because I was a Wall Street analyst um, and had to learn how to be one, uh, is called Best Practices for Equity Research Analysts. It's about the driest title you'll want to to think of. But when you crack that book and you look at what's in it, it talks about mastering your interpersonal skills. But That's what a Wall Street analyst has to do. You have to convince investors that your idea is the right one. So how do you do that? Uh, It then tells you about how you generate quantitative insights. And then importantly, there's there's a section on generating qualitative insights. And so that's how you connect dots. That's how you look between product strategies and customers and competition and financials and balance sheet, and then crawl through the SEC filings and figure out what the company's really doing versus what they say they're doing. Um, But then importantly, in the last section, it tells you, how to communicate your idea so others take action, and and I think that others take action is, is a really important skill. So, you know, my my I'm, I'm hoping my daughter's following in my footsteps. Some days it looks like mine, sometimes it looks like my wife's. Um, but I've recommended this book to her, and and she's read it once or twice. I'm not sure if she's read it cover to cover. It, it's not that good to read, but it's one of the best books for a practitioner. Interesting.
0: And the way you've characterized it, it sounds like a communications book, and that's well. Perhaps that's what it had most to offer you.
1: Yes, exactly right. And and I, I think engineers are are introverts, and going from uh, from that characteristic, which we many of us have, um, to being someone comfortable with standing in front of audiences, companies, companies boards, investors, who will call you four letter names if you if you if they disagree with your idea, and having the wherewithal to actually deal with that again, with that even keel. Um, yeah, it's a book that helps you learn how to deal with some of the toughest situations and how to bring quantitative and qualitative things together and then communicate.
0: Great, great choice for us. Thank you. We're up to our final question, uh, Inder, where we ask you to look forward and share with us some of, uh, your priorities for the coming 12 months. What would those be?
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, I think that the last three months have been really uh, instructive for us to say, you know, how do we deal with, uh, how do technology companies, frankly, broadly deal with, with black swan events like the current pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, to, I think my positive surprise, technology has proved resilient. Um, and so in a sense, if you look at the need for technology today, it's even more than it was barely three months ago. Uh, whether it's your broadband connection, whether it's your laptop that need, might need upgrading, whether it's your smartphone, et cetera, um, there's, a, there's a sense that um, technology is gonna be more needed, not less. And then, then you have 5G right around the corner um, as, a, as a big wave of, of technological innovation about to happen. So for us, for the next 12 months, Uh, um, what I'm looking for is for us to navigate through the rest of this year, um, realizing that we're not out of the woods yet, um, but also um, uh, comforted by the fact that some of the things that could have been huge disruptions have actually turned out to be somewhat of a tailwind. The need for more broadband, the need for better technology, the need for, in fact, automation, AI, that probably, if it was going to happen over five or 10 years, probably got accelerated. And and so how do we actually make sure that we are investing in the right things over the next 12 months to help ensure not only the safety and security of our customers and our colleagues, which obviously is job one, but also how we are investing from a financial standpoint, how we deliver on FY20, and for Arm, how we set ourselves up for 2021 and for success.
0: Inder Singh, thank you for joining us on CFO Fault Leader. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate your time. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.